word. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can sit down. You know, there's part, there's part of every single believer, no matter who you are, no matter what stage you're in, there's part of every single believer that is still and always running from the Lord. There's this part of us that's just, that's just always sort of trying to get away from God. And you say, that's bad news. But here's the good news. God always relentlessly pursues his kids. Isn't that good? That's my whole sermon right there. God relentlessly pursues. He is the one that's working in us. You know, there's such a thing uh, in life as cognitive dissonance. Have you heard that term? I think we've talked about it before up here. Cognitive dissonance. It's this idea that, that what you say and what you do are not entirely the same things. Not congruence. That our decision or our declarations that we believe and our um, behaviors that we display are sort of different, out of alignment, out of harmony, out of key. There's a funny example of this. Some years back, I lived in Central Point, kind of this ghetto area in Central Point. It was like one of the first years when the fires were really getting bad. Remember when it was not normal to have smoke? It was really bad. I mean, it was so bad, like you weren't even supposed to leave your house. You were like supposed to stay inside. And we had this, this, this gentleman, I don't know if he was homeless or not, but he, he could have been, and he was on his little motorized cart, and he would come by every morning, and, and he would pick through our garbage cans, and he would get the, get the cans out, you know? Okay, fine. I always just called him Can Stan, because um, it just it seemed like a good thing, you know? Um, so Can Stan, would come, and he was a chain smoker. He was just, like, sucking down cigarettes, like, uh, all the time. And so one time, I just went out to try to talk to Can Stan, and just be friendly, you know, and... And he was like, man, this smoke is it's ruining my, my lungs, man. It's like my health is just shot because of the stupid forest management, man. Like these fires are killing my lungs. <laughs> I just like, dude, you're tripping, man. You're smoking like it's going out of style, right? That's cognitive dissonance, right? You know, like, like th this is like, you're, you're, so, you're so out of touch with what you think and what you believe and what you're doing are not really there. It's like your lips don't match. You guys know those foreign flicks? Like those bad spaghetti westerns that were made in Italy in the 60s? Or like those kung fu movies where their lips just don't match? Like, okay, that's cognitive dissonance. Like what you're saying, what you're doing, they're not really lining up. They're not really working together. And, the, and there's a lot of cognitive dissonance within the church, Unfortunately, right? There's a lot of Christians that we say one thing, we believe one thing, we confess one thing, but then we do something else that doesn't really reflect that we believe what we say we believe. We oftentimes, we look like, we act like, we talk like, we think like, we vote like, we type like, we spend like, vacation like, drink like, fight like, sue each other like, divorce like, vote like, have sex like, consumer, consume entertainment like, work like, and make decisions exactly like the world. Or can we get real? Okay. I'm just, I'm not saying that, 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 that we have to be perfect, but there is a reality for, for a lot of us, and myself included, where sometimes I look at my life and I'm like, man, this looks different than it maybe it should. 
It's cognitive dissonance. And this is, this is universal for the believer. God's working on it. He's working it out. So why am I bringing this up? Today, we start a four-week series in the book of Jonah. By the way, shout out to Mike Moore. Drew that for us. Pretty rad. Nice job, Mike. Praise God. All glory to God. Um, yeah, I know you hate it when I do that, but I just, it's, it's cool to see the body using its gifts. Okay, um, so we start this four-week journey in Jonah, and here's the thing about Jonah. Jonah was a believer, okay, but he was a hypocritical believer. He was a terrible prophet, probably the worst prophet in the world. I heard someone say the other day, that was kind of funny. Um, this is, tells you a lot about the way that the, um, you know, the, the, the stage, the platform and the evangelical movement works. If you were looking for someone to fill the stage at a big conference, um, you would have Jonah, right? Because he, he had a revival, right? But he was a terrible prophet. You know, you wouldn't have Jeremiah. Nobody listened to Jeremiah's message. Poor guy, you know, he, he was the weeping prophet. Jonah had great results, but he was a terrible prophet. He really, he disobeyed the Lord. He had great cognitive dissonance, even though he was supposed to be this man of God, this representation of God and his voice. Um, he really is, is not, not the greatest example. And so we're going to learn something, particularly this morning, about how does God work out this cognitive dissonance in our lives? How does God bring us into alignment and into conformity with what he wants for us? What we learn in Jonah is that, um, and in the scriptures, is that God is intent on conformity. He's intent on conformity. He's bringing the believer into alignment, into conformity with his will and his thinking And his desires, this is what God's doing in us. Let me read a passage for you out of Romans 8, 28. You're familiar with it. It says this. We know, Paul doesn't say we think. He doesn't say we assume. He says we know, we know it to be true. It's a fact. We know that for those who love God, that's believers, Christians, all things work together for what? Good. Okay, all things work together for good. We love that verse. (laughs) That's a fridge magnet verse, right? It goes on though, for those who are called according to what? His purpose. So good and his purpose, same thing. Our good and his will, our good, his purpose, same thing. What God is doing is he's bringing us through circumstances into alignment with his will because his will is the best thing for us. Paul goes on, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed. Conformed to who? To the image of his son. That, my friends, is the Christian life. Okay? When you get saved, God deposits perfect righteousness into your account. Jesus' perfect life, yours. Positionally, you're forgiven You have the perfect life now imputed to you. Now God is growing you up into who you already are. He's bringing your mind and your actions and your thoughts into conformity with who he's already made you to be positionally. This is what he does. Another one, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is a good verse to memorize if you're ever wanting to know what the Lord's will is. God, what's your will? What's your will? What do you want me to do? You want me to buy a red car or a blue car? What do you want me to do? Do you want me to work here or work there? Do you want me to live here or live there? Here's, here's a good one for you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God. What? Your sanctification. What does that mean? 
It means you are being set apart more and more for God's purposes. Sanctification, uh, if you want to think about a picture, think about the, the, in, the ves- in, the, um, in the temple, they had the vessels and the tools that were sanctified. They were set apart specifically for the use of the temple, for the priesthood. So in the same way, you and I, when we get saved, when God purchased us, redeemed us, he said, now I'm setting you apart. It's a process to become more and more and more useful for my work, he would say. That's God's will. See, he's a lot less concerned about what he's going to do through you. He's way more concerned about what he's going to do in you, sanctifying you, making you useful, making you someone that can be useful. So God wants to grow you to a place where his will and your will become one. One more quick passage I want you to see before we dive into Jonah. John 16, verse 23. You can look it up later. This is fascinating. Jesus is speaking to his disciples right before uh, he goes to the cross. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask, listen to how stunning a statement this is. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Whatever you ask. What could Jesus possibly be meaning? Does he mean if you just slap Jesus' name on the end of it that you get it? Is that what he means? Well, what does his name mean? His name means his character, his will. Anything, Jesus says, anything consistent with my will, with my Father's will, uh, anything in my name is yes. And then he says this interesting thing. He says, until now, you have asked nothing in my name. <laughs> in other words, the disciples, you guys don't, you don't have a clue what my will is. The disciples were completely tuned out to what God was actually doing in that moment. Okay, but then he says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So what my point is, is that God is trying to make our thoughts and his thoughts one. He's trying to transform our minds so that our minds think in congruence, in parallel with, in conformity to, surrender to his thoughts. And that's, that's what we're after here. That's what we want in Christian growth. Give me the mind of Christ. The apostles talk a lot about the mind of Christ. I want Jesus' mind in me. I want his feeling, his thinking, his doing. See, Jesus was so in step with the Father's will that everything that he asked for was yes. And of course, we have that one example where Jesus is like, can I, can I not go to the cross? To which the Father said, you need to go. And what did he do? He said, yes. See, Jesus, in his humanity, was continually learning to follow obediently the will of the Lord. Now, what does all this have to do with Jonah? Well, Jonah is a great example of someone who was not in conformity to the will of God. Someone who was pushing back against what God wanted him to do, what God was calling him to do. The question that I think our chapter answers this morning is, how does God work this conformity in us when we're running away from him? Okay, and, and I want to say this again because some of you guys might think, well, I'm not running away. Uh, yes, you are. All of us on some level are still running away from the Lord in certain areas. There's a lot of layers to us as human beings, you know? We have a lot of room for disobedience. We have a lot of room for, for, for us to sort of live in rebellion. So this applies to all of us. We're all Jonah in one way or the other. Jonah is an example for us of how God chases us you glad God chases us? He chases us down when we're running away from him, when we're living in rebellion. So let's dive into chapter one. Now, before we get to the text, I need to give you some background, some overview, some introduction to the book of Jonah. How many of you guys, all you know about Jonah is what you saw on Veggie Tales? Okay. 
fish slapping. Remember that? Does anyone, the Ninevites, like that was their sin. They slapped each other in the face with fish. Okay, just get that out of your head. Okay, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's just not helpful really for, for today. Unfortunately, we think Jonah, man, we think like flannel graph and a big, you know, and, and just like this flannel whale and, and Jonah is just kind of like this cute little bearded prophet, you know. Um, this is, this is a, a much more dark and sinister book than I think we realize in our flannel graph time, okay? Let me give you a few things about Jonah uh, that are unique to this prophet. Um, Jonah finds himself in the neighborhood of what's called the minor prophets, these 12 small prophetic writings. They're called minor prophets because they were not able to drink. They were 19. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. just want to see if you're listening. I just wanted to make sure... This is theology test. Let's see if you, got, you guys passed. No, they're called minor prophets because they're short. They're small. They're little books, okay? So the only thing difference between Jeremiah and Jonah is one is four chapters and one is like 30 or something, okay? So, so minor prophets. So Jonah's book finds himself with, within that. You know, the Bible is actually organized largely by genre, not necessarily by chronology. Um, so whoever put the Bible together in our canon put them all together for that reason. Jonah's unique because it focuses not so much on the message of the prophet, but rather the life of the prophet, okay? So this is actually, unlike a lot of the prophets, which are just sort of the teachings of or the declarations of the prophets, this is actually the story of Jonah. And Jonah's life is for us a parable. It's a parable, and it's actually, uh, he embodies the heart of national Israel in his day. So how was the original audience meant to read the book of Jonah? It's a good question to ask. The answer is they were meant to see themselves as a nation in the life of Jonah. Jonah represents the rebellious heart of Israel, who God had chosen, God had called. They belonged to the Lord, but was not fulfilling their missional duty. You know, God called Israel not just so there could be an elitist group of people that said, we're circumcised and you're not. God called Israel to be missions, to be on mission to the world. God is the God of the nations. And this is another thing that sets the book of Jonah apart from other books is it's focused on the Gentiles. Most of the the Bible, most of the Old Testament is focused on this one single line, uh, this redemptive line of Israel uh, throughout uh, the world. So God focuses his attention on Israel. But Jonah, along with a few other books in the Old Testament, gets outside of the borders of Israel into the nations. God is calling this man, Jonah, to go preach to the Gentiles. It's very interesting. Now, lastly, a unique thing about this book is, is um, per square inch, there are more supernatural occurrences in this book than just about any other book. There's a lot of supernatural stuff going on here. And that leads some people to go, well, maybe this wasn't meant to be read literally. Uh, maybe this is just sort of a parable or maybe just sort of an, an idea. Uh, I got a real issue with that. And the issue with that is that Jesus didn't think so. He actually talked about it as though it was literal history. You know, it's, I mean, I can understand. It's so hard to think of a fish swallowing a person. I mean, yeah, God breathed stars and resurrected his son and walked on water. But, you know, this idea of a fish is so bizarre, right? I mean, how could God possibly sustain human life inside of a belly? Uh, Anyone pregnant? Okay. Um, I'm being snarky, but it's true. Okay, come on. If you, if you look at this thing through uh, a supernatural uh, mindset, okay, if you look at this thing through a supernatural, I just say, hi, Sean Paul. I miss you, bro. So good to see you. Glad you're here. Okay, everybody look at Sean Paul. No, congratulations on your baby, dude. Oh, I'm so excited for you. Okay, anyways, this is what happens when your staircase is right next to the stage. Yeah, so it's bad. Uh, love that guy. Okay, anyways, so where was I? Uh, supernatural things, yeah. Okay, um, do we have a problem with supernatural things? 
The Bible is really uh, entirely supernatural things. God is a supernatural God. So what are we to see in Jonah as a whole? Well, Jonah is not about Jonah. It's not about Jonah. You might think, yes, it is. I've read it. No, it's not about Jonah. And Jonah's not about the Ninevites. Maybe you're thinking, yes, it is. I've read it. It's about the Ninevites. No. Jonah is about Yahweh. And it's about Yahweh saving the nations. God is the God who saves. He's the God of salvation. If you want to know the key to the book, it's in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. It's in Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. He says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Listen, Jonah says it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God saves. This is a book about saving. God is saving. He's saving Jonah from himself. He's saving the Ninevites. He's even going to save some pagan polytheistic fishermen or uh, some sailors that we're going to see here in chapter 1. God is a God who saves. So let's dive into chapter 1. We'll just take the first chapter this morning. This chapter breaks into three parts if you're an outline person. Verses 1 through 3, Jonah runs from God. Verses 4 through 16, Jonah is ruined by God. And then uh, verse 17, Jonah, Jonah is redeemed by God. There's a little outline for you. So first, Jonah runs from God. Verse 1, chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Emetai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. We need to ask a few questions here. First of all, who is Jonah? Uh, the author seems to presuppose that we are familiar with this character. It just kind of drops right in like we know, oh, yeah, Jonah. Some people think this was maybe taken out of a larger grouping of writings that we don't have about Jonah. I don't know. But what we know about Jonah was that he was a prophet. There were three offices and sort of the leadership sphere or the leadership level of um, Israel. One was king. One was priest, one was prophet. And similar to our government, we have different branches that create accountability uh, within that. And so within God's theocracy, he had these different offices. The king was there to rule and administrate peace and God's will over the nation. The priest was there to make atonement and to uh, connect the people to their God. The prophet was there to speak the word of the Lord. It's a pretty noble office. The requirements of prophet were not high. You didn't have to go to seminary. You didn't have to be from a particular tribe. God just had to speak to you. The only requirement for being a prophet was that you don't be a false one. And if you were a false one, guess what they would do to you? They'd stone you, okay? Um, so yeah, think about that. Okay, so the problem was, though, in Jonah's day, there were a lot of false prophets. In fact, Jonah came from this uh, northern Israel. You may not know this, but a lot of Israel's history, Israel was split into two kingdoms, southern kingdom, northern kingdom. In the south, you got the temple, you got Judah, um, you got Benjamin, uh, sort of David's era, if you will, David's, David's uh, region down there. In the north, you have the other 10 tribes. The 10 tribes, if you read the book of Chronicles, you'll find that the northern kingdom, they never had really a good time. They, the second that the kingdom split, they were in idolatry, they were sinful, they were wicked, they didn't follow Yahweh. They set up the high places where they worshiped God and would, would syncretize adding idols into their worship. Largely, I think, because they didn't have the temple, they weren't rooted to God's sort of uh, Levitical system there. They were kind of out on their own. And the kings of the north were pretty bad. Well, guess where, jo guess where Jonah's from? He's from the north. He's from the northern kingdom. And the north was famous for their false prophets. 
A lot of times they would set up false prophets to tell them what they wanted, the kings what they wanted, so they could do whatever they wanted to do. Okay? So this is where Jonah uh, comes out of. So who is Jonah? When and where was Jonah from? He's from northern Israel, about 700-ish years before Christ came, before the uh, northern exile. If you guys are familiar with your biblical history, the north was exiled uh, by the Ninevites. Now, what was this word of the Lord? The word of the Lord was to go and declare judgment on the Ninevites. And um, by implication, when you declare judgment, there's an opportunity for mercy. So God is telling Jonah to go to these pagan Gentile Ninevites who were, by the way, Assyrians. Assyria was an empire that would eventually basically take over the entire world until they themselves were taken over by the Babylonians. Uh, so the Assyrians were sworn enemies of Israel. They sworn enemies. These were, these were bad people. I can't emphasize this enough. These guys were known for their, their blood-curdling tactics in war. These guys were just, they were shameless. Now, they were, uh, as a people, the, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, they were highly um, technically adept. They were actually pretty modern for their day, but their ethics were highly underdeveloped. And they were the greatest single military threat to the nation of Israel of the day. So Jonah, guess what? He hates these guys. And every Jew in the day would have hated these guys. I heard a good uh, equivalence of this uh, in a commentary. This would be like if uh, someone went in in 1940, whatever, and they said uh, to a Jew, uh, you need to go into Berlin, and I want you to proclaim judgment and ask them to repent. Uh, go, to, go up to Hitler and ask him to repent, right? So you got two things going on there. One, you have fear. Are you kidding me? Marching to Berlin during World War II as a Jew. Uh, secondly, you have hatred, they hate the Nazis. The Nazis are their mortal enemies. So Jonah, we give him a lot of grief, but in reality, this word comes to Jonah, and Jonah is probably ingrained as a racist against any Gentile, let alone the Assyrians. This is, ter- this is a terrifying call that God asks Jonah to do. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, Tarshish, which is really fun to say. You should try it sometime, Tarshish. Uh, Tarshish is completely the opposite direction of Nineveh, completely the opposite. So so, um, you have a Jewish man who, by the way, Jews in this day, they hated the sea. They hated the ocean. The ocean for them represented chaos, Okay, uh, they were terrified of it. So you have a Jewish man choosing to go completely out of his way for no other reason, just to run away from this decree of God, this will of God, getting on a boat, risking the ocean to go all the way to Tarshish. Okay, he's rebelling. He doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to give the message to the Ninevites, and we all know that from the flannel graph. Okay, uh, why is Jonah going to Tarshish? Why is Jonah going to Tarshish? Does he really think that he's going to escape the presence of the Lord? I mean, is he really that thick? Is he really that, that dumb as a prophet that he doesn't know you can't escape the presence of the Lord? I don't think so. I think he knows he can't escape the presence of the Lord. Here's what I think he's doing. See, Jonah wasn't the only prophet of his day. I think Jonah goes, wow, that's, that's interesting, Lord. You want me to do that? Okay. Um, well, there's other prophets. So I think what I'll do is I'll charter a vessel as far away as I can possibly get, rendering myself useless And hopefully God will then be prompted to send another prophet. What he does is he puts as much distance as he can between himself and the space in which God is working. But I think he underestimates the fact that God chose Jonah to be the one to deliver this message. And God was not just going to give up that easily. 
So he charters this, this vessel in order to try to escape this. Now, just a quick point here. Sometimes, and maybe note this, sometimes rebellion isn't doing wrong things. It's just doing other things other than God's will. See, we think about rebelling from God. We think about like, oh man, like that's like I'm blowing it ethically. That's I'm 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 getting drunk on the weekends, or um, you know, I'm looking at stuff I shouldn't on my computer, or I'm I'm, I'm whatever your carnal thing is. Like in, in this case, Jonah's doing something that from the outside actually doesn't look immoral. Like he's not down at Joppa, and someone's like, what's Jonah doing at Joppa? Like they just be like, oh, Jonah's going, Jonah's going to Tarshish, whatever, who cares, okay? Here's my point. Oftentimes when we are out of the, uh, the will of God, we're in rebellion to God, we're not necessarily doing ethically immoral things, but what we often do is we stuff our life with other things so that when God asks us to do a particular thing, we go, sorry, too busy, can't do it. Maybe it all happens in the subconscious, I don't know. I would just suggest this morning, maybe press a little bit here, that if you're filling your life so full with good things that you are not able to do God's explicitly commanded things, you're in rebellion. And this is, this is the disease of our generation, is we think we can do more than we can. We, we, think, we don't think about our time like we do our money, that it's on a budget and that we will run out of it. What do you do when you write your budget? You go, okay, rent, that's first. Gas, groceries, that's first. Utilities, okay, now that we've paid those bills, what's left? We need to think that way about our time. What we often do is we just stuff our life with everything we think would be good and fun to do. And then we go, oh, sorry, God, I just don't have time to get up in the morning and read my Bible. I just don't have time to make it to church. I just don't have time to be in community. I just don't have time to serve. I don't have time to make disciples. I don't have time to lead my family. I don't have time to pray with my wife. I don't have time because, you know, I'm just too busy. So what's your Tarshish? Like, what's the thing that, that if someone saw you doing it, they wouldn't be like, oh, you're in rebellion. But, but you know, and God knows that it's keeping you from doing what he has explicitly called you to do. And there's some real clear commands in the Bible that we don't have to guess about. It's this thing called the Great Commission. The Great Commission was not just for professional pastors. The Great Commission was for every believer. Everyone who has been claimed by the blood of Christ has this Great Commission. You know what it is? Go into the nations and make disciples. That, now... I want you to see this. God's will here to Jonah, it's not nebulous. It's not meta. It's not like God's not making Jonah guess what's your will. It's clear as day. And we as Christians in the New Testament, we have a clear as day command. That command is to make disciples, teaching them to do all that Jesus said and taught. That's clear as, that's clear as day, right? So ask ourselves, are we doing that? Are we committed to that? Are we committed to the process of seeing people formed into the image of Christ? Are we committed to ministry? All of us, the entire body. And by the way, just a side note here, and you might note this. When we are avoiding God's will, we always try and avoid God's word. We just do. When we know we're not in alignment, when we know that we're kind of running from something that the Lord's asking us to do, we don't like opening the word. And when you go to open your word and there's something in you that's like, ah, I just don't feel like that. Ask yourself, am I afraid that God's going to press on something? Am I afraid that God's word is going to read me? We need to get into God's word because it's in God's word that he brings us back into conformity. All right, verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. 
And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. What do we learn here about these mariners? They're polytheists. They all have their own gods, a lot like our culture, actually. We all build our own little deity and our own image that does whatever we want it to do, right? These guys were poly, these were, these were pagan Gentiles. They, had, they each had their own god, okay? They had a buffet of gods, and each of them are praying to their god. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. They're hoping that if they can um, get rid of enough of their trade goods that they're trying to get across the sea, that maybe the, the, the ship will float a little higher and they won't get buried under these waves. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Okay, why is Jonah sleeping? There's two possibilities, I think. One is that Jonah's conscience was so seared <laughs> that he's totally fine snoozing while his sin is putting these people's lives in jeopardy. Could be. Or I, I think more likely, Jonah is just trying to find anywhere that he can escape from this sort of this, this, this gut-wrenching um, feeling of guilt. You ever, you ever felt so out of whack? You ever felt so sorrowful over something that the only place you could find relief was sleeping? I wonder, you know, is, is it that he's maybe sleeping? Does this remind you, by the way, does this remind you of some, another story in the Bible where someone's sleeping in a boat? Yeah, just think about that. Okay, we'll get there. Verse six. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? <laughs> Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So this Gentile polytheist captain comes down. He sees Jonah sleeping. He's like, what are you doing, man? Get up here and pray to your own personal savior. How embarrassing for a prophet of God to have to be told by a Gentile to get up and pray. How embarrassing is that? Verse 7, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and a lot fell on Jonah. That's God's hand working there. He's exposing Jonah. God has a gracious way of exposing us when we're living in sin at the right time in the right way. Verse 8, then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? What do you do? What do you do for work, man? You know, that's the question. What do you do for work? Uh, what do you do for work? Um, what's your country? What people are you from? And Jonah has to swallow hard and say this, which I'm sure these words coming out of his mouth would have felt so hypocritical. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. <laughs> oh, you do? The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Uh, there's the cognitive dissonance right there. Seriously, Jonah, you, you, you know, you do? You fear the Lord? You sure? Because you're, you're in complete rebellion. You're, you're totally running. You're snoozing at the bottom of the boat. Clearly, Jonah for us is a picture of this cognitive dissonance. He did not really believe what he said he believed. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid. They figured it out. Okay, it's this guy. This guy's the problem. They said to him, what is this that you have done? How have you offended your God, right? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. These guys are shocked that this prophet is fleeing from his God. Now, just a side note here, by the way, sin never only affects you. Don't ever believe that lie. 
Yeah, this sin doesn't matter. Nobody really knows about it. It's not affecting anybody. It is. It's affecting others. It always affects others. Sin never stays localized. It's like gangrene. It spreads. It always spreads. Jonah's sin is now affecting these men that didn't even have a clue what they had on their boat, right? Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Here's what I would say. Hurl yourself into the sea. What do you mean? You want us to come pick you up and throw you over the boat? Throw yourself in there, man. Like, this seems noble for Jonah, right? Like, oh, Jonah's sacrificing himself for the boat. No, it's not. It's actually very unnoble. Okay, first of all, Jonah would rather die than do what God says. That's pretty bad. Jonah would rather sink to the bottom of the sea than bend the knee to the Lord. Man, that's some serious hardness of heart. Jonah, if he was really godly, if he was really repentant in this moment, he would go, look, guys, first of all, he would pray because he still hasn't prayed yet. Did you notice that? <laughs> he still hasn't prayed. He doesn't pray until he's stuck in the fish. He still hasn't prayed. If he was godly, he would say, guys, listen, I just repented. I just talked to Yahweh. Can we turn the boat around? Can we go back? And I guarantee these guys would have been like, uh-huh. But that's not what Jonah does. He puts the blood on their hands, and he says, you guys throw me over so I don't have to obey God. Man, that's some serious hardness of heart. Some serious hardness of heart. And so what do they do? Well, they don't want to throw him over because they're probably terrified of his God. So nevertheless, verse 13, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They're like, forget that. We're not throwing them over. Let's get the oars out. Let's just give it one more shot. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. That's another fun word to say. Tempestuous. Uh, that, that's what that, my brain, if you ever wonder what's going on inside my brain, like that's, that's the kind of stuff that goes inside my brain all day long. It's tempestuous. Okay. Uh, Therefore, they called out to the Lord, oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Remember what I said this book's about? What's it about? It's God saving. It's about God saving. Who is God saving right here? He's saving the fishermen. He's, he's saving the, the seamen. He's saving the, the, the boatmen. He's saving these guys that are pagans, that are polytheists. These Phoenician Gentile, these guys don't know Yahweh. They don't worship in the temple. They're not God-fearers. And yet, here in this moment, God has used these situ this situation in such a way that these guys are crying out to Yahweh. Wow. So cool. God saved them through the worst prophet that's ever lived. Think God can use you? What do you think? God saved these guys through a disobedient, uh, rebellious, prodigal prophet. God uses all kinds of things to save. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed, I love that, the Lord appointed a great fish. It doesn't say whale, you notice that? Uh, great fish, could have been a whale, we don't know. Uh, great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I want you to see something here, and that is that this is not meant to be for us a picture of propitiation and justification. 
God is not demanding the life of Jonah to pay for the sin debt of Jonah. What is God doing? God is correcting and he's disciplining. Okay, in, in our house, we try to not use the word punish when we're talking about our kids. Why do we do that? Because we try and fail, but we try to be gospel-centered parents. What that means is I'm not looking to punish my kids. I'm not looking to get something out of them for their wrongdoing. What am I doing? I'm correcting, disciplining. There's a difference between discipline and punishment. See, God's not punishing Jonah. God's not angry at Jonah. God's not wrathful at Jonah. Jonah is Believe it or not, he belongs to the Lord. He is a covenant member of Yahweh. He is a Jew. He is a prophet. God doesn't say anywhere that he's not authentic believer, but he's a rebellious prophet. He's a prodigal prophet. What God is doing here is he's not punishing Jonah. He's correcting Jonah. Do you see that? He's correcting and disciplining and reorienting Jonah back into God's will. We don't have time to go there, but Hebrews 12, if you want to write it down, Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, the author of Hebrews talks about the fact that if we have a father in heaven, what kind of father does not discipline his kids? We're so blessed to have a patient God, a patient father that doesn't just let us do whatever we want, but kindly, graciously corrals us back into his will through a series of events. So I bring that up to say what we're to learn from chapter one is not how do we keep God from punishing us? How do we keep God from picking on us? How do we stay in the God's will so we don't have any storms in our life? How do we make sure we do the right thing so that God's not mad at us? That's not the point of chapter one. God's will is not a Ouija board. God's will is not something that you have to find in the clouds, and if you don't, he's going to pummel you. That's not the New Testament saving God that we see here. What we see here is a God who is already covenant committed to Jonah, and now he's correcting his kid, bringing him back into his will. God is not, if you're, if you're in Christ right now, if you're not, the wrath of God abides on you. If you're in Christ right now, there is no wrath. God has nothing for you but correction. And he will oftentimes allow things into your life to bring you back where you need to be. Storms. So here's what we're going to do. How does God conform us? What can we learn in this chapter about how God conforms us to his thinking, how God disciplines, how God corrects? Let me give you three things I want you to see here. Three things. First, I want you to see God's patience. Second, I want you to see God's providence. And third, I want you to see God's persistence. God's patience, God's providence, God's persistence. First, God's patience. I want you to see that God let Jonah get on the boat. You notice that? God could have, I mean, he could have created a giant force-filled bubble, like the Truman Show. You ever seen that movie, right? He's like trying to sail, and every, like, he like runs into the wall. God could have been like, nope, you're not going to Joppa. Stop right there. Instead, God lets him get on the boat, why? Why does God do that? Well, because um, we often assume that the, um, well, I sh I'll say it this way. God wants deep change, not just directional change. Okay? He wants deep change, not just directional change. He doesn't just want to go, eh, nope, go right there. Okay. He doesn't want disgruntled change. He doesn't want disgruntled obedience. He wants deep obedience. He wants us to feel the weight of what happens when we are our own God. 
and we do our own way. And so sometimes God will let us feel the pain a little bit of our sin, not to wreck us, not to punish us, not to hurt us, not to crush us, but to correct us, to change us deep, deep down in the deep layers of our heart. And this is what God wants with Jonah. He wants Jonah to, listen, I know it's a word that we don't really like because it's old-fashioned. He wants Jonah to repent. What does repent mean? Change your mind and change your actions in that order. If you change your mind, you'll change your actions. He wants Jonah to have a deep sense of repentance. He wants Jonah to see what it looks like when he leans on his own understanding. And God is going to kindly, in his patience, allow this storm to unfold. And you know, we often assume that when a door opens, that must be God's will. Don't always assume that. You notice God let Jonah buy the ticket? Must have been God's will that I go to Tarshish. <laughs> right? God let me buy the ticket. No. I got a one-year-old son at home right now. You know what his favorite hobby is right now? Playing in the toilet bowl. He loves it. He loves it. He loves the little brown ships too. They're the best, right? Sometimes, I'm just kidding. Um, sometimes we try, to, we try to leave the door shut. We try to shut the door so he doesn't get in. Sometimes we leave the door open by accident. Does that mean that it is my will that my son go and play in the toilet bowl? No! Just because... Jonah could buy the ticket doesn't mean it was God's will. Just because you can get away with something for now, just because a door opens, doesn't mean it's God's will, okay? God had already expressed his will. He'd already communicated his will. He already clarified his will to Jonah, and Jonah is actively rebelling against it. God uses this toilet bowl, so to speak, to teach, to teach Jonah what it looks like when he leans on his own understanding, Sometimes we need the futility, we need to feel the futility of faith in ourselves in order to feel the fruitfulness of faith in him. We need to feel the futility of when we're running the show so that we can go, it's so much better to just take the Lord at his word and trust him. So what rebellion has God let you walk into in your life? Or what rebellion is God letting you walk in right now? Okay, let me just encourage you. God is not standing over you right now with a stick waiting to beat you over the head. That's not how it works. God is a father who loves you and spent the precious blood of his son to redeem you. And he loves you. And he's voraciously pursuing you and wanting to bring deep correction to free you from that thing. That's what he's trying to do. He's patient. The second thing I want you to see is God's providence. I want you to see, and I think really the, the biblical author here wants us to see that every detail in this story is working together by God for the good of Jonah. It's all providence. You know what providence is? Let me explain. There's sovereignty and there's providence. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. Sovereignty means God has total control, total power. Sovereignty would have been, like I said, Jonah tries to go to Joppa and he hits a visible wall. That would have been sovereignty. God's like, nope, can't do it. Okay? Providence is where God lets things unfold and then he uses the way things unfold back to create his will in the end. He uses a storm. He uses a fish. He uses these sailors. He uses the casting of lots. All of these things. He's allowing them to happen, but he's allowing them to happen in such a way to get Jonah right where he wants him to be, which is back in Nineveh, okay? This is God's providence. This is how God works, and sometimes we question, God, you, why would you allow this storm? What we do is usually, usually either we question why he allowed it, or we assume that he caused it because he's mean, or because he's, he's trying to get at us. 
No, God is not bringing storms in your life to hurt you. God is allowing storms in your life to get you right where he wants you. There are no wasted storms, guys. There's no wasted storms. For the believer, every storm, and even the unbeliever, God uses storms to get unbelievers to the point where they will finally bend their knee and not go to eternal hell. Thank you, Lord, for storms. Man, storms wake us up out of our delusions. God's goal is to bring Jonah to the place of total surrender. We hate total surrender until we're there, and then we love it. Total surrender feels like the most terrifying thing in the world. Unless we really, really, really know that God is so good. Man, can you how terrifying of a place for Jonah to be. He's thrown over the side. He doesn't know if God's going to catch him. In his prayer, we'll see it next week in chapter 2, he talks about he feels the weeds as he's being sucked down to the bottom. He can feel the, the ground grabbing him like Sheol. He's, he's falling into death. Jonah doesn't have a clue whether God's going to catch him or not. But Jonah's in the best place he could possibly be in life. You know where that is? Completely dependent on God to work. That's where we need to stay. I got nothing, Lord. I can't swim out of this. I can't breathe underwater. I can't do, I can't do this. I'm, I'm gone. This is the place God is trying to bring us to because it's only in that place where we finally realize that he is God and we are not. God's trying to teach us that we're not God. That's like the main thing he's trying to teach us. Maybe it's just me, I don't know. The safest place to be is in the midst of God's ferocious power, totally surrender to his sufficient grace and sovereign plan. So it's God's patience, God's providence, now God's persistence. I want you to see this. God gets them to throw Jonah over the, over the side. That's always what he wanted. And after he throws Jonah over the side, he doesn't leave him there. He catches him. Okay. He, he catches him. God catches his kids. I got a little three-year-old at home right now. She weighs like nothing. I just love throwing her in the air. Okay. I catch her. I catch her. God's going to catch you. If you're his kid, he's going to catch you. Okay? He catches Jonah, and he catches him by swallowing him up completely in his immobilized grace. Isn't that great? Jonah's stuck. He just keep, he's stuck. And you know what? Uh, that's not a very comfortable place to be at first, is it? Sometimes God brings us to this place, and, and pardon the, the, the allegorization here, but it's like Jonah didn't know he was in a stomach. He's just in the dark. He's just like, for all he knows, he's dead. Okay, uh, it's not comfortable. It's restrictive. Sometimes we lose freedom. Sometimes we feel limitations when God is correcting us, when God is disciplining us, when God is corralling us, when God is bringing us back into alignment. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. We're like, God, I missed the freedom I had. Okay, well, you just aren't going to have that freedom for a little while, but you will get it back. It's not about freedom. Sometimes God just needs to limit us, restrict us, ground us for a time. Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it's dark. But we are exactly where we need to be. And where we are as Christians is swallowed up in the capable hands of God to get us where we're supposed to go. It's the best place to be. Because all things work together for our good. I want you to see the gospel picture here, by the way. Don't miss this. Okay, for those of you that students of the gospel, which you all should be, what is the gospel? The gospel is that we are not um, fused to our own life. We are swallowed up by the grace of God. We have found ourselves in Christ, and in Christ we will be delivered to God's eternal kingdom. God has swallowed up Jonah, and in the same way in Christ we are swallowed up by the perfect work of Christ. His life imputed to us, carrying us where we need to be. Isn't that great? It's good news. That's good news. Uh, by the way, just a side note, how much say does Jonah have in all this? None. None. It's kind of like God knows what he's doing. 
He's in control. So let me end with this. The question we should be asking is not just how does God bring us back from rebellion? How does God bring us back from running? But listen, probably the better question we should be asking is how do we avoid getting into that place in the first place? Right? How do we, how do we stay in a place where we're already lockstep with the Lord's will so that we don't have to get thrown over the side, so, so, so that we don't have to go through this painful correction and discipline, right? How do we stay lockstep with God's will? Let me give you two things, and then we'll close. First of all, we need to have the mind of the Lord. We need to have the mind of the Lord. You know, Jonah didn't wake up one day and be completely thick uh, and not discerning the will of the Lord. Jonah just didn't wake up one day and, and all of a sudden he was out of step with God's plan. I mean, God's like, I want to go save these people. I want to go warn these people. I want to go do a work in Nineveh. And Jonah's like, that's not what I want at all. Why did Jonah not want that? Because listen, Jonah was baked in. He was saturated with the thinking of Northern Israel, which was pagan. Really was pagan. You read the book of Amos, you'll learn all about Northern Israel in Jonah's day. Okay. They were really not godly. Jonah swam, pardon the pun, Jonah swam in the culture of his day, and the culture of his day was really not godly. So when God's word came to Jonah, Jonah didn't like it. Why? Because he wasn't thinking like God. He wasn't thinking like God. We need to have the mind of the Lord. Listen to Romans. Paul says this in Romans 12, too. Okay? Um, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means everything you do should be a sacrifice unto the Lord. Every time you go to work, every time, every, everything that you do should be a sacrifice to the Lord, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Listen, do not be conformed to this world. Rather, what? Be transformed by what? How are we transformed? How do we avoid being Jonah? How do we avoid being in this place where we're completely out of step with what God's trying to do? We are transformed by the renewal of our minds, our thinking, so that by testing we may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what God's trying to do in all of us. He's trying to get us conformed to his mind. So that our will and his will become one. Jonah was not conformed to the mind of the Lord. He was conformed to the mind of his day. He was a man of his day. How do we conform our minds to God's mind? It's going to sound really basic. Forgive me, this is too fundamental. But probably a lot of us in here haven't done it in five days. Read his book. Write that down. Read his book. For crying out loud, we have the mind of God written in one volume, the living word of God sitting on our laps. Some of you guys have like 50 copies at home in like five different translations probably at home. You guys can get online right now and study the original language. We have God's expressed will and mind and revelation of who he is and what he's doing and what he's gonna do and what he's done and how he thinks and how he feels and how he loves you sitting in your lap. Read it. I don't, I'm not saying this in anger. <laughs> Speaking to myself, really. Read it, guys. Get up tomorrow and read God's mind. He has revealed to us himself through his son, through the word, and the spirit of God. If you're a believer, the spirit of God lives inside of you ready to reveal these truths to you. 
you read this thing, you'll start to think like it. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. How do we hear his voice? We read his words. We read his words, we'll know his voice. A lot of us trip a lot about God's will. We trip about God's will because we don't know his word. If we knew his word, we wouldn't trip so much about his will because we would know his heart. We would know what pleases him. We would know what he cares about. We would know what he thinks about. We know what he wants. Jesus was so rooted in God's word. Remember, in the wilderness, the enemy came to him to try to tempt him. What did the enemy do? He tempted him with scripture. What did Jesus recite back? Scripture from memory. Think Jesus had a big old King James Bible out in the wilderness? (laughs) Jesus didn't read King James. This is stupid. Okay. (laughs) I love it. It's the authorized translation. No, it's not. Okay. Um, No, Jesus memorized the scripture. He knew the word. Okay, he knew the word. And he recited scripture back to Uh, to uh, the enemy. And you know, if you study that, every single recitation that Jesus brings is from the same place, Deuteronomy. What's that tell us? Jesus was probably in Deuteronomy in his devotions. He was thinking about Deuteronomy. He was thinking about this particular place in God's law. You need your mind to be transformed. It's a process, a process of being transformed by God's word. You need to meet him in prayer. Okay, you need to meet him in prayer because if you don't know him personally, then his mind and his word has no effect on you. You need to know his body. His body is a way that we get to know the Lord being here. And you need to live his mission. It's hard to know God if you're not actually doing what he's doing. The question for us should not be, what do I want to do and will God bless it? The question should be, what is God doing and how can I help? God, what is your mission? tell you right now, the local church is important to the Lord. Missions are important to the Lord. Sharing the gospel, important to the Lord. Widows and orphans, important to the Lord. These are things that God has said, these matter to me. Do them. You're not like Inigo Montoyo and Princess Bride, you know, with, with the sword, right? And we're like, what's your will? No, you don't need to do that. Put your sword away. Read God's word. Okay. I love the Prince's Bride. <laughs> second thing, second thing, how do we avoid the Jonah mindset? And this is the most important thing I'll say. You need to have the greater Jonah. You need to have the greater Jonah. The book of Jonah is not a parable um, or a picture for us of um, disobedience. The, Jonah is, uh, the book of Jonah is a picture uh, that we need a greater Jonah. We need a better prophet. Uh, I want you to turn just really quickly. We'll close here. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Um, We don't have to wonder how to interpret the book of Jonah because Jesus did it for us. He told us how we're supposed to be reading this book. He mentioned it in his dialogue. They were asking Jesus for a sign, okay, the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 12, 38. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, "An, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. How interesting. For just as Jonah was three days and three... Notice he doesn't say, for just as Jonah pictured a metaphysical idea as a parable that he might have been in some kind of a fish-like figure. He doesn't say that. Jesus read the Old Testament. You got a problem with the Old Testament, you got a problem with Jesus, Okay. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, that's him, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. Isn't that crazy? With this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. In other words, Jesus is saying the Ninevites are more godly than you Pharisees. They will judge you in the end. And then he says this, note it, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Isn't that cool? What is the something that's greater than Jonah? It's Christ. It's Christ. See, Jonah is meant for us to picture Jesus. Although Jonah was sent to the nations, Jesus was sent to the nations. Jonah was the key to the Gentiles. Jesus was the ultimate key to the Gentiles. Jonah ran away from God's will. Jonah was in rebellion to God's plan. Jesus was in perfect submission, perfect surrender to God the Father's will. You know what Jonah means? It means dove. Isn't that interesting? When you think about dove, what do you think? You think about God's um, patience as the water was receding in the days of Noah. You think about Jesus perfectly submitted to the Father's will in the waters of the Jordan. The dove comes down as a symbol of God's spirit. Jesus is the superior Jonah. He's the superior Jonah. Jonah was three days and three nights in Sheol, in the dark, in in the, the belly of this fish. Jesus says, I too am going to go three days, three nights in the grave. But listen, I will die the superior death in order to overcome superior death. I will climb out of the grave and bring with me the key to the Gentiles. He's the better Jonah. He was the superior sacrifice that stopped the superior Storm. Remember I told you earlier, I told you, remember, what did Jesus do that reminded us of this? He was sleeping in the boat. Remember that, 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 that uh, moment? The disciples are trying to get across the Galilee. This crazy storm comes, and Jesus is sleeping in the boat, just like Jonah. Except this time, they wake up Jesus, and instead of him saying, I'm in rebellion, throw me over, what does he say? He speaks to creation and says, cease and the waves stop. That's the Jonah I want to be with right there. That's the Jonah I want to be fused to. That's the Jonah I want to be in. The superior prophet, the perfect prophet, the one who came to calm the storm once and for all, the one that has power over creation. I think we're meant to see a connection there. I really do. When Jesus is sleeping in the boat, I think we're meant to see a connection between him and this prodigal prophet. And the connection, I think, is that Jesus is the superior prophet. What does that mean? It means that we are, if we are united with him, his performance is imputed to us. His prophetic ministry flows through you and I when we speak the gospel. Amen? Put your focus on the better Jonah. So the problem isn't we need to do the right thing so God doesn't send storms. The problem is we need to do the right thing so we're not going to get pummeled by the Lord. No. Keep your focus on Jonah number two. Keep your focus on Christ. Let his life live through you. And wherever those places are in your life that you're running from him, let his kind and compassionate and capable and sovereign and providential hand reach into your heart where only he can and begin to do work there. So this morning, you're going to have an opportunity to come to the table and to take this cup and to take this bread, which is a reminder, guys, of the fact that Christ is the greater Jonah that he died the greater death, rose the greater resurrection, and that our peace and our joy and our comfort is found in him. So I want to invite you guys this morning to come. Mike 
Come on back up, Tiana. While these guys are playing, I'm just going to let you guys take it on your own. Normally, we take communion together as a group. Um, but this morning, I just want you to take about four or five minutes, come up, grab it, go back to your seat, work through this with the Lord. Is there an area, Father, that I'm running from you in? Is there something Jonah-like in my life? Surrender it to his kind and capable hands. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for chapter one of Jonah. Lord, thank you, Jesus, that you came to be the better prophet. Lord, Jonah represents us. He pictures us. We are all like Jonah. Thank you, Lord, that you were not. That Jesus, you were faithful. You were obedient. And we find our righteousness in you. Lord, thank you for your discipline. Thank you for your comfort, Lord. Thank you for the way that you work, Lord, in and through us in the midst of storms. I pray for these guys as they come to the table. I pray that they wouldn't come lightly. I pray they would examine themselves, that I would examine myself this morning. And ask, Lord, where do you want to work in my heart? Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name.